as they're gathering to head out, we continue to think about a life that matters. Taking the long view, foresight, perspective, it's hard to sum up that the attributes that Mark 13, 1-8 are inviting us to consider today. In this story, the disciples are wowed by the permanence of the temple building, but Jesus says it just won't last. That we should be a prey for the ability to see beyond temporary troubles of this world. Discover how to begin building a foundation that leads to eternity. So what do we do? What do we emphasize? Where do we place our hopes? How does my brokenness not define me and allow me to see a wholeness I can't yet feel? That's what I want to talk about today. Maybe that's something in your life too that you're struggling with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Consider this. Gracious God, as we gather this morning to consider these words from Mark, we think about what Jesus is saying to our hearts. How is he speaking to our situation, to our lives, to our struggles, to our successes, to our way of being a disciple? Lord, pour that Holy Spirit into us into a place where it breaks us apart, opens us up, Helps us to consider something new and different in our life. Creating that life that matters. Pour into the words that you've given to me and the words that are heard by our hearts today. May they help to fully realize themselves in our lives by our actions and by our words. In Jesus Christ's name, we ask these prayers. The people both here and at home said together. Amen. So we're tempted to dive into Mark 13 as you look in the Bible app to see all the notes. And actually, the fill in the blanks work, so you have work to do. I also added a new feature where you can click to expand and get more information about things that I've mentioned so that it doesn't overwhelm those of you who don't want that information. And in Mark 13, you have to look at context, right? You have to look at, like we did last time, you have to see what's going on to really understand it. Chapters 11 and 12 are as he enters Jerusalem and are filled with Jesus' negative comments regarding Israel's religious establishment. Like when Jesus curses an unproductive fig tree. You wonder why he curses that fig tree? Well, it's a symbol of the religious system that's been unproductive. It's making a point, not just trying to kill a fig tree. And he cleanses the temple during this time. Or in the parable of the wicked servant tenants, he recounts Israel's rejection of the prophets and the son. Or the widow's offering from last week. It's really funny. By the end of the service, I've gotten quite a bit. <laughs> became a change bank. He speaks clearly enough the religious leaders want to kill him. But they're afraid to do so because of the crowd. So they question his authority. They try to trap him again and again. And so chapters 11 and 12 are filled with direct conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then we come to our gospel lesson where Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple. 
And so the events of chapter 11 and 12 lay the foundation for Jesus' teachings in chapter 13. And then chapter 13 also serves as the introduction to His crucifixion and death in 14 and 15. A terrible time, but one that culminates in the resurrection at the end of Mark in chapter 16. So this message was a particular value to Mark's community that was suffering persecution again and again. So Jesus' words to us come on a field trip that begins in Mark 13 with the disciples. In verse 1 and 2, they're saying, Teacher, see what kind of stones... As he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, this was Jesus' last visit to the temple, and actually it probably indicates Jesus' final break, temple leaders, when he leaves. But interestingly enough, in this gospel, Mark, this is his only visit to the temple, unlike the other gospels. So it's one, and it's done. Teacher, see what kind of stones, see what kind of buildings... See, the disciples respond as you would expect country folk to respond to go into the big city. You ever been to the big city? You know, you go there and you look at the big city, New York, Washington, D.C., L.A., wherever you've been, tallest tower, Sears Tower, Empire State Building, the World Trade Center before and after, wherever it is you've been, that place where you've gone, wow, like, I can't believe how big this place is. That's exactly what the disciples are doing. Wandering around the big city, staring up with their mouths wide open. It was quite a sight, the temple. It was huge, larger than anything most had ever seen in their lives. And they just seemed in awe of what they were seeing, what the building represented. Temple complex was indeed a marvelous sight. You can't even do justice to it in pictures. And some of you are going to Israel and you'll see the remains of it. You can't imagine how big it was. Herod began construction and 50 years later, workers were still putting the finishing touches on this. And the temple was located at the top of a mountain. And it's huge. Josephus reports the walls that surround its grounds as being a stadium in length in each side. A stadium is over 600 feet. Which means that it is big. Twice the side of the the field on Titan Stadium. Twice, right? 100 yards, right? Three feet in a yard, right? Look at that. I remember some math. Come on. Huge. And the temple was 150 feet wide and 150 feet high at its highest point, which means that it's as tall as a 15-story building. What's a good 15-story building in Nashville? I don't even know. Most of our skyscrapers now, so I have no idea. Fifteen stories. Archaeologists have uncovered individual stones as large as 42 feet across. 42 feet. Weighing as much as 500 tons. And Josephus tells us that there are even bigger stones at the base of the foundation, which of course are still there. 
And the white marble is adorned with gold outside. And it shines blindingly in the sunshine. And the inside is adorned with gold and silver and crimson and purple and finely polished cedar. It's a sample of what it may have looked like. Just imagine what it, it might have been. And great columns supporting that great high ceiling. It's truly one of the wonders of the world. Even more significant to the Jewish people because the place where God makes earthly home. So you imagine this appointment when Jesus didn't share their enthusiasm for bricks and mortar, for architecture and design, for this state and religious symbol that they're seeing. He just seemed to brush it all away with a word. The disciples only see the temple's beautiful exterior. They didn't understand. But Jesus, the good physician, saw the whitewashed tombs. He saw the cancer that was inside, rooted deep. And he says, Do you see these great buildings? Of course. That's what we're looking at. Took our attention in the first place. They were stunned, amazed, swept away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we see them. We see them. There will not be left here one stone on another which will not be thrown down. Not one stone. Jeremiah said six centuries earlier that God would destroy the city, the temple, and the people because of their wickedness. And it happened. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, took the people into exile in Assyria, and now Jesus says that it's going to happen again. And for the same reason. The wickedness of the people. The old is passing away. The new is being born. The old worship centered in the temple has become corrupt. The new worship will be centered on the Messiah. The new temple. The new place where people will encounter God. In the prophecy, the destruction of the temple will play a significant role in Jesus' crucifixion. Because when Jesus is brought up on trial, the formal accusation against him is this. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Which are a twisted version of what Jesus' words are here. But Jesus' prophecy will be carried out literally. The Romans will build great fires at the base of the walls. The intense heat will cause the foundation stones to crumble. Undermining the walls will collapse under their own weight into great piles of stone. And the Romans then will spend months leveling off all of the stones. And thousands of the city's inhabitants, perhaps hundreds of thousands, will die. And Caesar's purpose was to leave future visitors to the spot. No ground for believing it had ever been inhabited. He wanted to wipe it off the face of the earth, and he did. But Mark most likely writes this gospel shortly before rather than shortly after the destruction of the city. So that's all still to come, even for his people. So then, so then they continue on. 
in Mark 13, 3 through 4, tell us what these things will be. That's their big, their big focus now. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, they've left now, they've gone up. The Mount of Olives is across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. Commands a great view of the city and the temple. You'll see it once again, my friend. But note the phrase here, opposite the temple. This phrase is more than geographical. It has the flavor of being opposed to the temple. See. The temple had been the center of Jewish worship. Now Jesus is ushering the kingdom in which God will be present in people's hearts. Temples no longer be required as the location of God's presence. Yes, they actually had a little apartment for God in the back of the temple. That is where God lived while on earth. The Holy of Holies. And the puzzled disciples, they stumbled along after Him in the Mount of Olives, wondering what it was all about. Why did He just say this? And they left. And after exchanging head glances and head bobs and silent communication and maybe pushing somebody over to the side, Peter, James, and John and Andrew asked him privately, what are you talking about? What, what, what are you talking about? And probably Peter, since he was the one intended to speak first and then think later, anybody like that? Says, hey Jesus, is there something we need to know? I mean, is there a date we can put in our Google calendars or something? When's this going to happen? Let me schedule it in. Let me take care of it right now to make sure. Destruction of temple, 9 a.m. Don't want to miss that. Put a reminder on it. Tell us, when will these things be? What is the sign that these things are all about to be fulfilled? Inquiring minds want to know. So the disciples ask two questions. The first question they ask is, when will it be? The second question they ask is, what will be the sign? The when and the what. And as usual with Jesus, he doesn't really even answer the question they asked. <laughs> I don't care about your questions. Let me give you something. So he said he answers the questions they should have asked. What you really meant to say, Peter, was they asked him when. That's our common question, right? The when. When will this happen? When will I need to be in the right place, in right relationship, right with God? When? But that's just not the question. Because probably the true answer is now. Say now. Ah, you're there. Now. When? Now. When? Now. Now. Why put it off to the last minute and miss out on all the joy that living rightly brings now? Why to wait until there's some time to be able to change our lives and live the way we're supposed to live? The when. Make sure I make sure the day before I get it in the right. I make sure before Jesus comes back, I get everything lined up in my life right before, you know. Can I know what day it is? I need to know so I can make sure I get my life cleaned up the day before. No. It's now. 
Why wait until you have to instead of doing now when you get to it? So then Jesus then begins to give them some and us some things about what it means to live a life that matters. Jesus answering began to tell them, be careful. Say careful. How many times in life have you been told to be careful? How many times have you told a kid? Have you told your kids, somebody else's kids, anybody who listened, be careful, be careful, be careful. Now this word in the Greek, which I really like this word because it's blepete, 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 blepete. And out of that word comes blepo. <laughs> and this word, so this word in the word blepo, say blepo. I just wanted to hear you say that because it's blepo, blepo, blepo. It means to be aware, to be discerning. I'm not sure that careful is the best translation. So rather than a warning to be careful, it's a call to see and discern. A call to keep one's eyes open and one's critical faculties fully engaged. And what they should be doing? He's saying, pay attention. That's usually the answer to the usual question. Pay attention to what is going on around you. And what is coming down the road? Pay attention. Not in fear, but in what? Faith. Not in fear, but in faith. So the fear is, when's it going to happen? When's it going sure to happen? That's fear. Faith is very different. And he says that no one leads you astray, deceive you. For many will come in my name. So Jesus warned of messianic pretenders claiming to act on the Messiah's authority or claiming to be the Messiah, saying, I am he, I am. And what is that? What is I am throughout the Bible? It is the name of God that I am he. So he's telling them to be ready. The divine imperative the whole sense of what's going to be happening in their lives. And in our day, not all messianic pretenders are religious. All sorts of people claim to have the answers to our deepest needs. Politicians, listen to the right one. They'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. Steer you in just the direction you want to go. Both parties. No party in particular. Fitness experts. Tell you exactly how to get straightened out. Talk show hosts always have the answer. Financial advisors, toothpaste manufacturers. If you just use the right toothpaste, you'll be okay. Etc. But some pretenders are religious. They're often magnetic personalities who twist Christianity into a crossless faith that's often wrapped around them instead of Christ in the first place. At best, they enrich themselves with our donations, and at worst, they lead us to our death. Jim Jones in Jonestown, David Koresh in Waco, Heaven's Gate, Southern California. You can add to the lists people who believed that these folks would save them. 
and will lead many astray. But the people most likely to lead us astray may be those closest to us. So be careful. Pay attention. People for whom we have the most respect and affection can still lead us down the wrong path. Young people are vulnerable to peers and teachers and sports figures and musicians and other celebrities. I can't tell you how many times I had to deal with, not because Hannah or her friends do this, but how many times from Beach we get a text from the principal about the latest TikTok trend or something else, like people taking all the stuff out of the bathroom or breaking the toilets because they saw it on TikTok and they were challenged to go and do it. Are you that stupid? That you listen to somebody on a TikTok somewhere, on a 30-second video that somehow defines and decides what you do in your life and in your world, no matter who you are. And I don't know, it's being teenagers. i got plenty of adults do the same thing. Or about sports figures, musicians, celebrities. Look at their Instagrams and look how many people follow them. Adults are vulnerable to a supervisor who tells you what to do and is the wrong thing to do, but you do it anyways. You leave your morality behind to keep your job or to function in your environment. Your co-workers tell the off-color jokes, but you sit there and listen to them. Your drinking buddy, even your spouse, can draw you in the wrong direction. Casinos lure people with free food and drinks. Boy, we see lots of betting commercials nowadays. I didn't realize that all in the world existed like that, but now I can see Caesars. It's so great. I love the Caesars ones because it just epitomizes exactly what I've been talking about. Caesar of this day, all the folks gathered around having a good time. So the list of those who would lead us astray is nearly endless. We have to develop a spirit of discernment, he's saying. We must follow Christ with a greater determination and make sure that we stay on the course and we stay focused on Him. And so then to make sure they get the point, Jesus talks some apocalypse. I mean, who, likes, who doesn't like a good apocalypse chapter in the Bible? I mean, they just may lift you up when you want to leave here and put them on your mirror at home. And Hey, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. For those must, necessary is the word, happen. But the end is not yet. So at first reading, the, these, these verses seem to answer the disciples' question. When's it going to happen? Well, there's going to be a war. And when the war comes, get ready. But really, does the opposite, if you're really reading this. He cites the events that are often taken as the sign of the end of times. Wars, earthquakes, famine in a minute. But says the end is not yet when those things come. You see, the emphasis is not the signs signal the end, but the signs don't signal the end. There isn't any sign that signals the end. The next earthquake is not the end. You see, we're always waiting for the big one. When the big one comes, that'll be the end. When this happens, when that happens, when this happens, when these natural disasters happen, that's it. That's the sign of the end times. 
Jesus himself says many times that is not the sign of the end times. And right here he's telling them when those things happen. For then he goes, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles, and that's not going to be the end. And in the years following Jesus' death, there's going to be a number of instances that happen that fit that description. Herod Antipas will find himself at war. Rome will put down a number of minor revolts by the Jewish zealots and then destroy Jerusalem. There will be earthquakes in Asia Minor in 61, Pompeii in 62. Remember Pompeii? That was a good one. In Jerusalem in 67 itself. And it didn't end the world then either. All after his death. So he says we must not take we must take care and become overly excited or overly depressed because of cataclysmic events. That's what happens to these groups. They get so excited or so depressed over what it doesn't happen, they kill themselves. Or they get so excited, they're like, okay, it's coming. I've got what's that guy's name? He used to every like five years, he's picking up a billboard that said, I've calculated it again and recalculated. What was that guy's name? Remember that guy that he did that again and again? And he did that, and then it's like, oh, no, didn't, no, missed a date. I think I missed a number there. People look at it and go, oh, my gosh. Or the, even the Mayans, their calendar ends. So what? They got tired of making it. They did it for like 10,000 years or whatever. I mean, come on. They got tired of making the calendar. You probably even turn the calendar into the right month in your house, let alone keep it going for, you know, 5,000. Yeah, Dan, I know, see? Eyes right into your house, Dan. Jesus says the end is not yet. We must be patient. And we must remain hopeful. They are the two things. And they're actually filling the blanks in your stuff. Patient and hopeful. But Jesus does say these things are the beginnings of birth pains. Now, I am no expert by any means. And so anything that I say at this point in the sermon is a disclaimer off to the side that I have not experienced what it's like to give birth. So we'll take that right there with that grain of salt. But from what I know, women anticipate birth both fearfully and joyfully. Fearing the pain but looking forward to the baby. And as the time approaches, the mood is more joy than fear, more hope than despair or pain. Amen? Hmm. So as Mark writes this gospel, the church is in the midst of birth pangs. It's in persecution, false messiahs, Christians who are beginning being led astray. In the midst of this, Mark reports... These things are the beginnings of birth pains, not the end. It is terrible, it is painful, but there is joy ahead. Amen? So we need to remember that in the midst of our own troubles, right? There are indeed wars and rumors of war. When we read the newspaper, it could lead us to despair very quickly. Jesus, however, says these are the things that are the beginnings of the birth pains. When we struggle with personal crisis, a grim medical diagnosis, or the death of a loved one, Jesus says these are the things that are the beginning of birth pains. 
however terrible they are, they and the events of the day are not the final chapter, he says. That there is time of joy ahead. So the disciples question and request for a sign having to the destruction of the temple that Jesus just prophesied about. He's not answering that. And the end of this chapter is where he's trying to get to. And the end of this chapter points to not the destruction of the temple, but the coming of the Son of Man. The hope is not in the temple. Though there's pain and fear and everything else, the hope is the coming of the Son of Man in verse 24. That's what he's getting to. So what are we supposed to do with these apocalyptic texts? Are we supposed to be fearful or issue warnings, threats? That's how many see these words and the other words whenever they're talked about. And we wonder why they're just stuck in here sometimes. But Jesus seems to be asking for something different from that. Instead, he seems to argue we need to take the long view. Say long view. The long view. Not the short view, but the long view. Look beyond our current situation for good or for ill. This isn't all that there is. This, whatever this might be for you right now, doesn't define who you are, and it doesn't define who you will be. Amen? So there's more to come. A world that you can barely imagine and can only glimpse from afar right now, like looking at the temple and all of its grandeur and then being able to say, that's nothing. I'll show you a real temple. So Jesus tells the four, and then through them the twelve, and then through them all of us, watch out whom you follow. That's his big point. Watch out who you follow, who you listen to, who out in the world steers you and guides you, who in your life you find counsel in. Watch out who you hit your hopes to. Or what? There are some who might seem to have all the answers. There are others who offer you a better tomorrow than today you find yourself in. I will give you something better. There are many who will gladly take on all followers. Follow me. I'll show you how to do this. And there are those who accept the mantle of leadership who are only in it for themselves. And we've seen leader after leader who does that. And we turn around and go, I cannot believe they fell. So he says, be aware. Say, be aware. Be aware. Be careful. Discern. Watch who you follow. And then he says, then when stuff happens, and that's the best way to translate most of verse 8, when stuff happens, whatever stuff looks like, if you thought a bad word in your mind right now, I'm going to have to ask you to pray really hard about that. Stop it. Chest-iron crap. I don't know. You just look guilty. You look guilty, Shelly. Guilty. When stuff happens, that's only the beginning. It might seem like the end, but it isn't. 
Disciples take the long view of what it looks like. They don't get caught up in the moment. They don't get so excited or so fearful or so worried or so whatever about whatever is happening to them in just one moment of life that they lose track of everything else that happens in their life, everything that God has done for them. It's amazing the Israelites... Six weeks after the parting of the Red Sea, we're already griping at Moses about the fact is, what have you done for me lately? Six weeks. Disciples see a greater vision. And you can't lose that greater vision. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. That's what he's saying. Can you imagine if, if the disciples or those who came after them just gave up because things got hard? I mean, they died, Rick. <laughs> they, got, they got nailed, they got crucified, they got filleted, they got cut up into pieces, they got thrown things thrown at them. If Paul walked into every city and get because nobody liked him or because they didn't agree with him in the Roman culture and he kept trying to change it, if he just gave up? What kind of faith is that? To just give up, to lose that greater vision, and that we don't get wrapped up in the stones that we have built or that others have torn down. That a life that matters takes the long view, holds on to the hope that there is indeed a God who has the whole world in His hands, right? He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the whole wide world in His hands. You got got hand movements of this too? You got... Stand up! They're, they got the hand movements. Come on, you ready? You gonna, you gonna do it? He got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Right? Got what? Yeah, the father baby. That's the deal. Now. I mean, then and now and forever. That's the hope. The hope is not our circumstances. It's not hope of what's going on in our life. The hope is not that we're not going to be sabotaged. The hope is not that things are going to go right for us. The hope is not that we're not going to be conflict in our lives. The hope is not things are going to be broken and and we'll be mistrusted or whatever else. It's not any of that. It's not our health or anything else. The hope is beyond all of that as disciples. It's the long view. I love what this one person said. In the moments of crisis, it helps to take the long view. That's what Jesus was trying to show the disciples before his death and before their persecution. To live a life that matters most. Amen.
temple is the Messiah. He's the one we worship now, not a place, not even this place. It's a place we gather together, but it's not the church. If it was gone tomorrow, it still wouldn't be the church. Because the church are those who gather together in Christ's name. And as we gather together in Christ's name and the mighty God and the universe, the architect of the world, the work of creation and the building is always before us, not here, but out there. Now we leave here and give ourselves and hope we might be co-builders with you in the creation of your kingdom here on earth. May we also reach others who are hurting who feel disconnected from your love and bring them to the table, that they too may join us in the stonework of kingdom building, whose mortar is the sharing of Christ's love in the world. And may we serve our Savior and our Redeemer. And may we serve our neighbors in all that we do. And everybody both here and at home said together, Amen.